Alright, well, welcome to Mixed Media. If you are joining us for this segment, we are a weekly podcast which is filmed, uh, filmed, recorded live. I don't know what the correct term is, recorded live, I guess, where we each talk about uh, art in general in our different fields. So, we've already heard from Nathan earlier uh, today on uh, Battle Star Wars Battlefront 2 and how some of the uh, glitches in the heroes versus villains mode uh, enhance the game. And yeah, so I'm going to be talking about uh, the 20th anniversary of the first Harry Potter film, which uh, was the 20th anniversary of its public release uh, in London was uh, yesterday. So one day late. I know I, I mentioned it if you're on our Discord server. From the film music perspective, that's a pretty significant uh, 20th anniversary, I think, um, for a couple of reasons. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that anyone's going to like pay, you know, it's not as significant, I, I think, for the film itself, because I, I people you might like Harry Potter, but I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone think, say that like the first Harry Potter film is a cinematic masterpiece yeah not really <laughs> yeah uh, i mean i mean it's effective i i really enjoyed it as a kid it comes off very much so more like a kid's movie than you know something yeah. super serious well to be fair i mean the book itself is also that way um but although the books get like they get darker it, as, as much as i can recall but the films seem to get like darker, like at a faster pace than the mm. than the books did. And yeah, I, I don't agree. know. I've never even seen the last few films. Not worth my time. I know some of the music from them, also not worth my time listening to. <laughs> um, but the the music to, to the first Harry Potter film, regardless of how you feel about Harry Potter the franchise, um, and obviously you can have a range of opinions on that for any number of reasons. But the music for this film is a pretty big deal. Um, I, I would say, and I think you'd be really hard-pressed to argue against that, this, that it's the most significant film score culturally, to go back one more year and say, of, of the 2000s. And I really don't think that you can make much of an argument about any other score. Uh, it's, you know, there have been a lot of other important scores, a lot of other great scores and you know if you're someone who spends your your day uh talking to other people who are immersed in film music there are a lot of other scores and people are going to talk about a lot of other scores that are more influential in terms of style and how people write film music um there are other scores that i think people will you know the average person you talk to them are going to like be aware of um probably inception would be number two um other film scores that have had their moment brief moment in the sun but really for its broad cultural impact this first harry potter so much greater than any other score again it, it really is not the most influential score for how people write film music because it is so tied to the film itself, the kind of the world of the film, it's not really something you can use as as a palette in most other films. And also, you know, no one else can really write in that way 
John Williams is just a genius. You can do things that are, you know, like it, but it's hard to to really capture that. But, in, you know, in terms of its cultural impact, I mean, what other film from the past, you know, 20, 20 21 years does everybody know a melody from, right? Everyone pretty much is aware of, of and can and you know, can can hum Hedwig's theme. Yep. Definitely the most iconic track of any any recent film by an enormous margin. And there are, I'll get into this in a few minutes, but there are a number of themes in it that are also iconic. Maybe not at that level, but lots of very singable themes. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, it's... And also just coupled with the fact that, you know, the movie itself was a big deal because the books were a big deal at that time, too. It, it has had an enormous impact on a lot of musicians, especially, you know, people who were growing up at that time, myself included. I know that, you know, it was pretty important for me uh, as a musician in my development when my parents bought me a collection for one uh, Christmas, I think in fifth grade, a bunch of, uh, you know, arrangements of Star Wars and Harry Potter music um, for flute. It's very important for me, like, you know, having developing the desire to go off and practice like not just play you know the music was given to me in my middle school band you know just talking to over the years a number of musicians um i i there are lots of people who you know that's like hearing this score in particular you know, had a really big impact on them uh, star wars too for, even even for people you know of a younger age um i think star wars is overall more influential uh, on for me and i think i prefer star wars um the music uh and that definitely also had an enormous impact on like previous generations um but harry potter very important um definitely more although the other star wars scores around the same time for the prequel trilogy also fantastic works um none of them have had the same kind of impact as this this uh, first Harry Potter score. So I'm just going to read a quick quote from John Williams that's going to illustrate a few things about uh, what he was thinking about with this score. So this is from um, just after the premiere of the film. Uh, so he says, I don't want to have formed images when I see the movie. I live with the film every day. I have the film in my offices and listen assiduously. In this case, because my kids were all reading the books, I read the first Harry Potter book. I never even imagined I would be writing a score for the film. I didn't even know they were planning to make a film when I was reading it. So much of successful film scoring relies on a gratifying melodic identification for the characters. I tried to, try to draw on something that marries very well with what I'm seeing. I wanted to capture the world of weightlessness and flight and sleight of hand and happy surprise. This caused the music to be a little more theatrical than most film scores would be. It sounds like music that you would hear in the theater rather than in film. Okay, so there are a couple of um, important insights there. So the first insight, and um, you know, we've learned a little bit more about this in other interviews of his, uh, is that unlike other films where he, you know, walks in and the director like, you know, gives him a kind of a, a preview screening of what, what they have so far. I and mean, that's the first time he, you know, knows what's going on in the film really. 
or at least that's the first time he's kind of like being able to truly imagine it visually. Um, he had read the first Harry Potter book without, you know, knowing that it was ever going to be turned into a film. So he already had a sense of like a full sense of the story. Interesting to think about how that kind of impacts the writing of this of the score. I, I I'm not sure I could come up with any specific ways because I, I don't really know what John Williams' um, uh, own thoughts on the book were, other than what he kind of says in this quote. Um, but that's significant. So he kind of had a, a head start on this. Um, apparently, he got into this uh, scoring this at first by uh, he was asked to write mu- the music, the trailer, and not the film which is unusual uh, to have like a, you know, full orchestra um, recording something, you know, significant for uh, their trailer, for a trailer for a film. And, uh, but clearly this was, a, you know, an important enough film uh, culturally, I guess, for what it was at the time uh, that they asked John Williams of all people to write trailer music. And so he had no idea what, he was, you know, he wasn't given like a trailer to look at to score. He just, we had told him just score Harry Potter, like what would sound would sound like a good trailer for Harry Potter, uh, and that's how we got Hed- Hedwig's theme. So, no reference to any visuals when he wrote that, which is also incredible. That's just him relying on what he read in, you know, in the book, you know, a few years before to to make that. Also, you know, truly remarkable that, that that came into being because um, as I've mentioned before normally you know with a film score you write it and the deadlines are so close that it literally gets printed the parts the musicians read get printed and they're still hot off the printer and they go right to the musician's stand and they sight read it but this uh, trailer music Hedwig's theme is so difficult for the violins that they got it done early and sent the music to the the concertmaster, and you know they were not sure that they're going that the, the uh, musicians of the London Symphony Orchestra were going to be able to record this and play it because it was so difficult. And the concertmaster looked at it the day before and was like, ah, "It was going to be very difficult to pull off." They spent the entire recording session recording just this one short-ish track for the trailer. Um, also, with significant contributions from Randy Kerber. He deserves an enormous shout-out for all of his work with John Williams, but in particular in this film. Uh, Randy Kerber is uh, the keyboardist that John Williams uses, and he's also Williams' synth guy. Um, so he was tasked with creating the iconic, uh, not-quite-Chelesta sound that is, everyone thinks is the Chelesta, uh, um, that is the beginning, it's placed at the beginning of Hedwig's theme. Mm. what's um, a celesta <laughs> okay yeah so it's a it's a kind of obscure instrument uh, it's also called celeste depending on how you, you spell it it's most famous for its use in uh, the dance of the sugar plum fairies oh okay so it's it's a keyboard that is mm-hmm. kind of like harp ish sound and like somewhere between like harp keyboard and bells kind of like a little twinkly little sound very very beautiful instrument can be used to all sorts of great effects but it is obviously like the the heart of this score and everyone thinks that it's an actual uh, celesta which is playing at the beginning of Hed- hedwig's theme and throughout the score it's actually not 
Uh, there's a very cool video where Randy Kerber shows exactly like what settings he used on his specific, which specific synthesizer to come up with this sound, all the different like waveforms he was combining. I would never have uh, guessed it was an inorganic sound. <laughs> like seriously. Yeah, so it's, it's combining a, 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 synth, a synth celeste with a couple of other specific waveforms. And I'm not a, I, I know Randy Kerber talks about a little bit about why Williams didn't want the actual Celeste. Um, I think it's just something to do with not wanting to sound quite light and, you know, kind of giving the, the sense of uh, the dance of a sugar plum fairies. That's what everyone knows the instrument from. Mm. So it's a little bit different than that, um, but very similar. So again, shout out to Randy Kerber for kind of inventing the this the actual sound that is kind of the heart of of the film and the NTV LSO for for you know for fantastic recording at London Symphony Orchestra so i guess after this successful trailer they asked him to score the film which he did so this film is kind of interesting kind of juncture, juncture i guess in williams's career um, throughout the 90s he'd been progressively you know, writing more and more kind of like childlike, um, innocent film, you know, film scores, um, sense of wonder. I mean, mixed in with some other things that are very different too, but things like Hook and then um, the the first uh, Star Wars Episode One, with, you know, young Anakin, and this is kind of the culmination of that with the you know music for eleven year old Harry Potter. It also shares some of the action. The general action style that um, is very unique to like ni- 1999 for a Star Wars film or episode one, not you know, first of the prequels, sort of that era through um, the third Harry Potter film. So, like, about a five, six year span in his career, right there, uh, 1999, 2004, I guess, is yet where he has a very distinct kind of action writing style for his action cues. Uh, so, so much so that um, in the second Harry Potter film, uh, which is being written at the same time as the second Star Wars episode two, due to what we what is presumed to be literally uh, someone handing the wrong piece of paper to the uh, orchestrator and copyist, uh, literally the music for Chase Through Coruscant is also the music, literally same music for the uh, Quidditch match. Oh, and they don't, they don't really sound out of place in either either case because the action writing is just so similar. Um, so yeah, so very tied to that kind of specific period in his writing, um, but drawing on a lot of things from his other scores. Um, there's a lot of influence uh, you can see from things much earlier in his career, um, uh, Empire of the Sun, which I've not seen the film, but again, is a film about like a young child and you know innocence versus the horrors of war. Um, Hook, which is obviously kind of a childish uh, flight of, of fancy. Home Alone, which is literally like some of the Christmas music in, in this film, is not quite copy and pasted, but it could be copy. You could put the switch for two. And is it the one that I just it, dropped in the chat? That one that you uh, dropped in the Discord? Oh, well, that should example. be on. It should be on there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, I don't remember what the actual track on the official soundtrack is is called. Um, 
but that there's a good example of that in there. So a lot of you know ties to his other work. So it's not his most original score, I I'd say, but um, overall it's just on a different level than either you know Hook or um, Home Alone. And some of the things that really make it so fantastic are, are the, the theme. So every, like I said, we all know Hed Hedwig's theme. I, anyone listening probably know it. And, and if you don't know that by name, I'm sure if you listen to it or anything on the uh, soundtrack, which I know Irving has uh, put a link to in the live stream, um, you'll probably recognize and be able to sing along with a lot of these themes, which is just something that is so... Uh, not prevalent in, in film music of the last 20 years, you know, very singable themes, which, again, it's it's a John Williams um, hallmark, hallmark of his style, but probably even more in this film than even something like Star Wars, where not all of the themes are quite as singable, even if they're memorable. Really, I, I'd say that, you know, of all the like the, the big character themes, which he mentions in that quote, he wanted to score, you know, characters and big ideas with themes. I, I'd say that they're all either home runs or grand slams, uh, except for Voldemort's theme, which that would be the odd one out. And if this weren't Harry Potter, that would be like a very, you know, well-received theme, I think. It's not quite as singable, the theme. Um, it's really only... Occur, it really only occurs twice in in the film. It occurs during the Quidditch match when uh, Professor Quirrell is trying to enchant Harry and kill him, you know, by tossing him off of his broom. And it occurs again when uh, Harry faces Voldemort at the end of the film. Um, and that's ironic, or not ironically, interestingly, it's the only um, theme that doesn't really get reused in a second Harry Potter film. Um, in place of, of that theme, the general theme of like mystery and intrigue and danger, which is just a three-note pattern that keeps getting you know built up, that becomes essentially not just mystery and intrigue in the second film, but actually becomes Voldemort. So that theme, kind of a one exception, but it's still a, you know a great theme. It's just so far below all the other very well-known themes. Um, I just listened to a snippet of it now, and yeah, it's not very singable, singable at all. So yeah, it's, it's very different. <laughs> it's very, it's kind of you know, if anything, um, it would have probably worked really well in the later films when like Voldemort, mm. like in the flesh, comes back, and like because it's, mm. it's kind of got this like slimy, you know, snake-like, um, yeah, quality to it. Yeah. It's definitely very dark. Yeah. Yes, yeah, but you know, obviously, so he doesn't generally have themes for like specific characters. You know, he kind of says that in his quote. Um, we have themes like, uh, you know, for the broomstick, Nimbus Two Thousand, uh, which again you can listen to the, pull that up and just listen to it, like there's ten seconds of that, and you'll probably recognize that if you listen to it. We have that three note mystery theme. We have uh, the theme of like the, the chords that are like the, the mystery and majesty of Hogwarts. There's literally the Hogwarts school song, which is a really interesting piece. He's clearly going after like this British 
you know, like old school, like uh, like Cambridge or Oxford, like that sort of feel. And this really wonderful theme, which um, I guess you could kind of associate with just the concept of family. And, you know, it progresses um, in its coloration and its harmony from places where Harry feels like his, the absence of his family. Um, we get this kind of really bittersweet, kind of dark version of it when he goes to the mirror of Erised and sees his parents in the mirror. And then uh, eventually at the end of the film when he kind of realizes that Hermione and uh, Ron are his you know, real family now, um, give this really triumphant version of it at, at the end of the film. Uh, so really fantastic theme. There's also a whole bunch of themes that are associated with Quidditch, um, very regal and kind of kind of kind of stately British march feel to a lot of that, which makes sense because we're at a you know board, British boarding school. <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of really fantastic themes. I think that's what kind of elevates this score. In addition to just all the um, the really beautiful colors that he's giving us, you know, like you said, that um, sense of weightlessness and wonder. And then he says, sleight of hand, which is interesting, uh, interesting way to describe it. Um, there are a lot of moments that are like that in, in this film where we get this sense that like, although this is like, you know, we're like, wow, I'm entering this beautiful and like strange and wonderful world of magic. Um, he's also reminding us that like, yeah, but these are also 11-year-old kids who are, like, taking I, you've Newton, Tobe, Frog, and, like, that's so cool. Let's go mix them up together. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he gives us some of that with, you know, there are all sorts of, like, weird harmonic moments where you get, like, slightly wrong notes. And it's really effective when that happens. And, I, you know, I, I could point to some specific moments in the score, but, like, even in the Hogwarts theme where, you know, we get it, like, a stately version, like, the, the Hogwarts um, school song, yeah, like, a stately presentation of it, and they do it again, but there are a couple of wrong notes in the horn, and, like, but, like, intentionally so, and in a way that's not going to, like, you're not going to listen to it and say, like, wow, that's, like, sounds disgusting, but it's just, like, slightly off. That's so interesting. A of, yeah. yeah, a lot of really cool things like that. I think my favorite moment in the score actually is um, this really cool transition where we go from um, they're like a, on the boats approaching Hogwarts for the first time, and it's like you know lit up with all these bright lights, and you got the dark silhouette silhouette of the castle, and maybe these beautiful orchestra or choir chords with sorts of woodwind sweeps. Very, very, you know, mysterious, but also grand. And then we get uh, the film cuts to. I'm gonna get the guy's name wrong, but like that, the guy who's like the ground, not not. Um, it's like the. Oh, is it uh Filch? Filch, yes, Filch. Thank I you. Can... I'm used to it with an F. Filch oh. and his cat, who has a name too. Um, yeah, the cat has like a real human name. I, f- I forget what it is. Yeah. So we we cut to that, and we see like. You know, we kind of go over his shoulder, and like you see him and then a cat, and the cat like walks down the stairs. That the music right there is this weird solo violin. I think it's scored a Taurus, or like you know, um, strings are tuned differently than they're normal. They normally are, 
I, I've read some uh, some analysis of this from some other people who know a lot more about the composer of Bartók than I do. Um, that it's very influenced by Bartók at that moment. But it's just weird. Like again, it's like, that, sorry, what Nathan? I, I heard that name. Um, you said Bartók, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. It's interesting. I heard that name. Um, not because I know. I think I didn't even know as a person. I knew of it because uh, there. I, I downloaded a uh, essentially a instrument sample pack, um, play essentially digital instruments, whatever. And mm-hmm. it had something. It was like a string, and it had several modes to it. Yeah. One of them was Bartok. Bartok pits. <laughs> oh, okay. There's something yes. called a Bartok pizzicato, which is a specific kind of like pull, like pulling the string up and snapping it back. So yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. So, and that's a which is a weird because you get like we go from this really grand full orchestra and choir, and this beautiful kind of like, you know texture to this like solo violin. It's doing something that's like slightly harmonically off the like lower strings, just supporting it, and it like it 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 just I don't know. It's my favorite part of the film because not only do we have this contrast like. I mean, obviously the music, I think, makes that scene because, you know, otherwise it's just this kind of shabby-looking guy with a cat. But here we go, like, you know, with the music, yes, Hogwarts is this, like, grand thing that we've heard about, but now here's, like, this kind of guy who seems kind of like an enemy, but not really, but, like, clearly there's something off with, like, you know, this wizardry that he does and his cat, and I don't know, it's just... It is a very cool moment in the film. Um, yeah, so the, there's so many great things in it, um, but overall, you know, I think that the main cultural impact, um, even more than just like you know how colorful the score it is or how weird some of those moments are, just how memorable and singable all these themes are, especially Hedwig's theme. Um, and it again, it's not. I don't think it's his most original score. I don't think it's necessarily Williams' best score either. Um, I, I'll take a lot of a Star Wars over it, but that's kind of my personal opinion. But it really, it's it's the perfect score for the film. I think it it is a far better score than the film itself is. It's definitely more iconic than the film itself is. And yeah, but it it, it just does what it's supposed to do so well. And for a film which was at the time, you know, must see, you know, a big event. I mean, I was a little, little too young to, uh, to you know, appreciate the actual premiere. Although I certainly remember watching it on uh, DVD shortly afterwards. Yeah, you know, perfect score for a kind of cultural event film. And I think that the music has kind of transcended the film itself. So. Yeah, big, big, uh, you know, 20th anniversary to that. It's kind of crazy, but it's 20 years old now. Yeah, um, that is nuts. Yeah, but, but good good opportunity to look back on it. I know I haven't talked as much about Harry Potter as I have uh, about Star Wars on, on our show. So, you know, that would be a good opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about it. Yeah, for sure. People are going to be also... Know that. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I didn't actually know that... Uh... Harry Potter was older than me slightly. I uh, didn't like remember it becoming into existence, right? But I just figured I was alive at that point. But, but uh, you know, I couldn't actually remember. <laughs> but actually, he's older than me. Interesting. 
Yep, it's pretty insane. <laughs> it's good timing too because everyone's about to see Harry Potter on like think during like Thanksgiving and holiday seasons perpetually on TV as usual. <laughs> um, yeah, if you know what I mean, <laughs> Nathan, seeing uh, yeah, the AB is on ABC, right? It's like they just show Harry Potter forever, like right before Christmas for some reason. I don't yeah. know why it's a tradition. Basically, from Thanksgiving, uh, you know, to to Christmas, you're gonna watch Harry Potter over and over again on ABC, uh, whatever ABC Family or whatever the channel is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I that. Uh, there's a gotta make a good Harry Potter game. Doesn't exist. Well, there are Harry Potter games. They are quite old, um, probably around as old as the movie or the book. Never played any of them. I, I think they might be well reviewed. Maybe I'm not sure, but you know. I mean, it wouldn't hurt to make a modern <laughs> Harry Potter game. There's so many, there's so many, so much opportunity. You know what I'm saying? I, I can envision all the all the possibilities in such a cool universe. Yeah, I agree. I, I will never forgive them though for the last two films of the series. Which, like, I mean, the last I, I read the books. You know, I probably read them twice or something like that. The series, you know, it feels like forever ago. But <laughs> um, I can't forgive what they did to the last book of the of the of the series, which was to absolute cash grab it and turn it into uh, two films instead of one. And it really should not have been two films uh, from, you know, from what I remember watching. I remember being like, this doesn't feel right at all. Nothing about this feels right at all. And, uh, you know, I didn't have the tools to understand wh- why, but I really think it comes down to like a change of pace that just feels completely unnatural from uh, the sixth film, you know, into the seventh and eighth is like all of a sudden we're spending time with details that we've never spent time with. And it just feels wrong. <laughs> so uh, really bad finale in my opinion. Also, they changed the ending like in the most odd manner possible. Like I was like, why would you do that? Like the ending of Harry Potter actually has like a lot to think about. And then they changed it in such a way that it was kind of like a typical hero's win sort of thing, but it wasn't as contemplative as the book book is at the end. But yeah.